Let's pray. God, we thank you. We thank you that you are the living God and that uh, we remember on this day the ultimate sacrifice that your son Jesus paid on the cross for us. We are humbled and we are awed by what it means. I pray right now, God, that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our hearts to receive what it is that you have for us this morning. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the opportunity we have to learn from it and study it. And I pray, God, that as we have um, sung or hummed or mouthed words in worship, that you would now speak to us. Thank you for this place. Thank you for the work that you have done through Abundant Life through the years. We thank you for the work that you are continuing to do here. God, we just ask that your presence would be here in this moment. We ask that we would sense that you are with us. We, sense, we ask that this would be um, not, just a, not just a sermon about a book, but it would be an encounter with the living God. I pray that it would be your words that are spoken. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The, uh, the last time that I preached in this church, I preached a message out of Joshua 3 uh, about the, uh, the Israelites are about to enter the promised land, and God tells them, I'm going to take you away that I've never taken you before. And we kind of talked about how this may be a season that God was going to take this church in a way that it never went before. I just want to go on record right now. What happened since I preached that sermon is not what I meant about taking us in a way we've never gone before. So I just want to go on record and make sure it's clear that that's not what I was getting at. Um, it's wonderful to be here with you, and it's so wonderful to see your faces. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that I remember how to do this. Also, just again, want to welcome everyone who is with us virtually, those who are joining the live stream. Uh, we are so glad that you are with us as well. Uh, we're going to start by reading out of God's word. We're going to read from Luke chapter 24. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 through 12. It'll be on the screen, but if you've got a paper Bible, feel free to follow along. This is what it says. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, hope you're all right if I unbutton my coat. I was getting my car worked on one time in seminary, and the mechanic, the, the mechanic's shop was across the parking lot from the mall. 
I got there first thing in the morning, and they told me it was going to be several hours of work, and I didn't have a ride coming. And so I looked at the waiting room in the, at the mechanics, which was two metal folding chairs and a magazine rack from 1984, and I said, I'll take my chances with the mall. So I walked across the parking lot and went into the mall. And again, it was early in the morning. Like it was like 8 or 9 o'clock. So the mall was open, but none of the stores were. They had a huge food court in the mall, and it was, it was practically empty. There were some people there, uh, you know, who's in malls early before the stores open, people getting exercise. There were some people walking, uh, some moms with strollers. But the food court was empty. It had all these tables that you could eat food at. But then surrounding the food court were all these uh, seating areas, the kind that you get in a mall. And I know it's been a minute since a lot of us have been in a mall. But, you know, like a couple of love seat type couches with a low table in the middle makes you feel like you're in your living room if your living room was sanitized and in a mall. It had a bunch of those, and so I just, I picked one of them and went and parked myself there, not a single other person sitting anywhere in the food court. I pulled out my Hebrew flashcards. That was as exciting as it sounds, and I started going through my Hebrew flashcards, and after a few moments, I got the distinct sense that I was being watched. So I, I try not to make it obvious, but I started glancing up, and there was an older woman uh, who was pacing back and forth at a, at a good distance. She had a huge Dunkin' Donuts coffee. They love their dunks in New England. And she was pacing back and forth, clearly watching me. It was, it was, it was more than a little awkward. <laughs> I could tell also that she was tense. She was agitated and she's pacing back and forth, always watching me. And I'm trying not to contact, but also trying to see what was going on. And after a few more moments of this, uh, you know, I was just hoping to mind my own business. She started to approach and I was like, I'm not looking for a conflict this early in the morning in the mall, but I guess here we go. And she came up to me, and she said, excuse me, can I sit here? And again, I'm on a little two-seater love seat, right? And there are probably a dozen other seating areas like this, all of them with three or four couches on it. There are 80 other open seats. And she asked if she can sit in the seat that is right next to me. So I'm a, I'm a little bit, keeping it real, I'm a little bit annoyed, but I'm also studying to be a pastor, and I'm supposed to be nice. And so, and so I said, sure, probably with an audible sense of confusion in my voice. And so she comes, and it's like airplane style, sits right down next to me so that our arms are touching. She lets out an, an audible sigh, puts her feet up on the table like she's in her own living room, and she goes, that is much better. And, and I was like, I was like, okay. And then she turns at me and she goes, um, I sit in this seat every single day and I've been watching you. And I want to be like, I know. And she's like, I've been watching you and it doesn't look like you're getting ready to leave anytime soon. And I was like, no, I'm not. And I'm sorry that I took your seat. And this is what she said. I, I'm not, I wrote this down afterwards because I thought someday I'm going to use this story and here's the moment that I'm using it. She turns to me and she goes, well, you really messed it up. And I'm like, I'm used to hearing that from people I know, but not from someone I just met. And she goes, but I guess it's all right. Everything is better now. And then she said this. She goes, I am very OCD. And then she goes, are you OCD? And in my head, I'm like, it's been 60 seconds and I'm already giving you those vibes. And so I, I said, I said moderately. Partly out of sympathy and partly because it's true. And what I want us to see this morning is that that seat 
for that kind, that sweet old woman in the mall back in Massachusetts, that was more than a seat. It wasn't just a seat to her. That seat represented for her safety, security, routine. It gave her a reason. It gave her a purpose. And when she lost that seat, she quite literally did not know what to do. She couldn't go on with her morning, with her day, or with her life because she had lost that seat that was so important to her. Now, before we get too high on our self-righteous horses and think about how silly that was of that lady, we are more like her than we probably want to admit. That seat for her was, was comfort, convenience, it was reason, it was purpose, it was, and I don't want to overstate it, but it's Easter, that seat for her was a little savior. It was what got her out of bed in the morning, knowing that she could go sit in the seat that she always sits in. And we all have things like that in our lives. We all have things in our life that we look to for comfort, for security, for purpose, for meaning, for, for the reason to live, the reason to get out of bed. We all have little saviors in our lives that if they were to be taken away, we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. We wouldn't know how to go on. We wouldn't know how to go on with our morning or our day or the rest of our lives. And for the purposes of this message this morning, I want to call those things functional saviors. We all have functional saviors in our lives. That is not my idea. Some uh, theologians and pastors who are much smarter than I am have come up with this idea. But we all have functional saviors in our lives. We all have things that we look to, the things that give us our reason to get out of bed in the morning, the things that give us the reason to live life every day, the things that if they were taken away from us, we do not know what we would do. We all have functional saviors. And they come in all shapes and sizes. Here in the Bay, we've talked about this a lot, and it's not going to come as a surprise to anyone. Here in the Bay, where production and success and achievement are really considered to be the highest good, for many of us, our job is our functional savior. It is what gets us up in the morning. It is what drives us. It is what gives us structure and purpose and meaning. And if we were to lose our job, we don't know what we would do. For others of us, it's the opposite. For others of us, it's leisure. The only reason we can get through our job the only reason we can get through the work week is because we know Friday is coming or because we know there's a holiday coming or because if we can just make it to the next vacation, that's the thing that gives us purpose and meaning and reason. For some of us, it's our health. If we were to, if we were to lose our health, if we were to get sick or to get out of shape or, or God forbid to get old, we don't know what we would do because our, our body and our health is, what is, is our functional savior. For some of us, it's a relationship. It's our, it's our husband, or it's our wife, or it's our boyfriend, or it's our girlfriend, or it's our children. They are, the, they are our reason for living. They are what get us out of bed in the morning. If we were to lose them, we don't know what we would do. And for so many of us in the Bay, actually in America, actually in the world, uh, it's our money. It's our possessions. It's our things. Our bank account is what gets us up in the morning, growing it. Um, our house, our car, our new house, our new car, our new kitchen, our new toy, our new jeans, shoes, whatever it is, consuming, uh, consumption is, is what gets us going. Those are just some of them. There's a lot more of them than that, but, but those, those hit on some of the big ones. We all have functional saviors in our lives, and here's the problem with functional saviors. They cannot deliver on what we are asking of them because 
I'm going to say something that you may not agree with here. At some point, we are going to lose whatever functional savior it is that we are looking to. They are all going to be lost at some point, and I believe that is going to happen in one of two ways. Either it's literally going to happen, like it did for that lady in the mall who I was sitting next to that day several years ago. We're, if, if our job is the most important thing to us, there is a chance that we could lose our job. If the startup or our business is the most important thing to us, there is a chance that, that, that could go, we could go out of business, that the company fails. If our health is the most important thing to us, at some point we're going to get sick or we're going to get old. If it's a relationship, at some point that relationship could break down. If it's our things, at some point we might lose our things. But if we don't actually lose it literally, I think the other way that we lose our functional saviors, and it's probably the more disorienting way, is when we actually achieve them. When we actually get the things that we are living for, and we realize they are not able to give us what we thought that they were going to give us. When we achieve the promotion, when we get the new house, when we get the car, when we go on the killer vacation, and there's always this this gnawing sense of, This isn't fulfilling me in the way that I thought it would. There's an amazing video, you can see it on YouTube, uh, of Tom Brady, greatest quarterback of all time, uh, from 2005. It's a 60 minutes interview. My guess is some of you have seen this before. It's after his third Super Bowl ring. He's 27 years old. And he is talking to the interviewer, and he is not even asked the question. He asks himself the question. He says, why is it that I have three Super Bowl rings and I still feel like there is something greater for me out there. He says, there's got to be more than this. And the interviewer goes, well, what is it? And he just laughs and he goes, I wish I knew. I wish I knew. We all have functional saviors. And I would argue we are all going to lose those functional saviors at one point or another. And as we turn to the text that I just read, as we turn back to Luke 24, verses 1 through 12, what we are going to find in this passage is the very situation that I just described. Here are Jesus' followers, his disciples, and some of the women who had been following him. They had come to believe over the past several years as they walked with Jesus Christ and learned from him and listened to his teaching that he was the Savior. He was both their functional Savior, and as we'll get to later in the sermon, he was also the real Savior. They had come to believe that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, but they thought he was going to be the Savior that delivered them from Roman oppression and Roman occupation and restored the nation of Israel to its former glory, its prime position as the number one nation, as God's set-apart people. But three days ago, they watched this one who they thought was their savior get brought before the Jewish council, falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit, taken before the Romans, tried, convicted, nailed to a cross, crucified, and killed, and then laid in a tomb. They have lost their Savior. And as we come to Luke 24, what we find is that they are looking for their Savior in the wrong place. The first thing I want us to draw out of this passage that we are looking at today is that we look for salvation in the wrong place. We look for salvation in the wrong place. They were looking for Jesus in the wrong place. If we look back at verse 1, it's It's dawn. And this group of women is heading to the tomb that Jesus had been buried in. He was crucified on Friday. He was laid in the tomb around sundown on Friday night. For the the Jewish people, their Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. So the Sabbath began as he was being put in the tomb. So they couldn't do any work until sundown on Saturday, but there's no light. So early Sunday morning, 
at dawn, the first, the first crack of light, these women are heading to the tomb, and it says they're going with spices. That's critical for us to know because that means they were not going expecting to find a resurrection. They were going to prepare what they thought was a dead body that had been laid in a tomb three days earlier. They're heading to the tomb at dawn. Curiously, verse 2, they find the stone is rolled away. Verse 3, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Verse 4, they were perplexed about this. And I think our ESV translation where it says perplexed maybe, um, maybe softens that word a little bit. In Greek, that gets at they were bewildered, they were at a loss. It can also mean a high state of confusion or anxiety. So they're going looking for a body. And the tomb is empty. There is no body in the tomb. And the next thing they know, two, two beings in dazzling clothes, which we take to be angels, are there. And if you get nothing else out of this sermon, just hear this verse. Verse 5, the angels say to the women, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Do you see what the angels are telling to them in that moment, saying to them in that moment? You are looking for your Savior in the wrong place. He is not here. You are looking for the living among the dead. You could spend as much time as you wanted. You could look all over this place. You are not going to find your Savior here because you're looking in the wrong place. He is not here. He is risen. And you will not find him here. When we first moved here to California, our youngest was two. Um, Georgie is down here on the front. And uh, one day, one afternoon, we realized that it had been a few moments since we had seen George. And so we started looking through the house. It's not that big of a house, so that didn't take that long. Couldn't find him anywhere. So then we all went outside, and we're looking in the driveway. We're looking in the backyard. We're looking in the shed. We got a little alleyway between the fence on the far side of our house. My kids call it Crocodile Creek. We're looking in Crocodile Creek. Yell, nothing, looking at the neighbor's yards, looking in the street. My wife starts yelling, this is not funny anymore. Tell us where you are, George. Come on. And then, and then someone heard a faint voice. We weren't sure where it was. It was George. And we figured out it was coming actually from in the house. What I hadn't told you is that when we moved here to California, George got the privilege of sleeping in our closet. So his crib was in our closet. And he had, been in, he had gotten in trouble earlier that afternoon. This is fourth kid problems. He'd gotten in trouble, and he'd been put in a timeout in his crib, in the closet, and he fell asleep, and we forgot about him. <laughs> and he woke up in a dark tomb, but he couldn't roll away the stone himself. No matter how much, no matter how hard we had looked around our neighborhood, no matter how hard we looked in the backyard or down the alleyway, we were never going to find George because he wasn't there. We were looking in the wrong place. And that is what so many of us, not so many of us, that is what all of us are doing with our lives. We are looking for saviors in places that we cannot find saviors. We are looking for salvation in places that cannot deliver us salvation. We are asking things that cannot do for us what we are asking of them to save us. When we look to our job, when we look to leisure, when we look to our health, when we look to... Um, our things, when we look to a relationship, we are asking those things to give us something they literally cannot give us. It is like asking a chicken to give you ground beef. It is not going to happen. We look for salvation in the wrong places. But here's the next, next thing that I want us to see in this passage. So the first thing is we look for salvation in the wrong places. And this is where I'm going to try and keep it uh, as, as real as I can. Um, because God's word keeps it real. 
Point two is really just building on point one, and this is it. We look for salvation in the wrong places because it is hard to believe in the right one. We look for salvation in the wrong places because it is hard to believe in the right one. Now, this may, be, I, I, this may be a little bit of a spoiler, but I'm assuming since it's Easter Sunday and you're in a church, that most of us have a pretty good idea of where we're, gonna, where we're heading with this message. We're heading to a guy named Jesus, and he is the Savior. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and the last. He is the agent of creation. He is the true son of David. He is the Messiah who was promised. And he is the only one who can deliver where every other functional savior fails. But here's the thing. It's hard to believe in him. It's not easy. It's not a slam dunk. It is hard to believe in the true savior. And we only have to look at the rest of our passage and really at the, the rest of Luke chapter 4 for us to see that's the case. So here are the women. They've gone to the tomb. The, tomb the, the stone is rolled away. The body is not there. The linen cloths are there. The angels show up. They say, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He has risen. And they go back to the 11 disciples, Jesus' best friends, his most loyal followers, and they tell them what has happened. And what do the disciples do? They rejoice. They praise God. They think about the six times in Luke's gospel that Jesus told them he had to suffer, die, and would be resurrected, and they fall to their knees in worship. They don't. That's not what happens. They go to the 11 disciples, and they tell them what had happened, and what do we see in verse 11? But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. That word for idle tale, it only shows up here in the New Testament, but in extra Greek literature, that word that's used for idle tale here also means nonsense. It is the, the delirious hallucinations of someone who is really sick with a fever. These women come back and tell the 11 people on earth who most would have wanted to believe that this is true, what has just happened, and they say, that's nonsense. We don't believe it. It's, uh, one scholar said it this way. Their confusion is a reminder that a fact as irrefutable as the empty tomb does not lead to faith. So the 11 disciples don't get it, but one of them, Peter, good old Peter, he is like, well, I got to see this for myself. Jesus gets up, or Jesus, excuse me, he, Jesus did get up. Peter gets up and he runs to the tomb. And just why? Why, does Peter, why is Peter the one who gets up and runs to the tomb? Because he has got to be the most broken of all of the 11 disciples. He has just three days prior denied Jesus three times in his moment of greatest need. And like a scene out of a movie, Jesus looks at him after he denies him for the last time and he falls apart. If those 11 men were the 11 men who most on earth would have wanted a resurrected Jesus to be true, Peter is the person who most among them would have wanted this news of an empty tomb and he has risen to be true. And he goes to the tomb and he looks in and he sees the cloth, he sees it for himself. And what does verse 12 tell us? It says he went home marveling. Now that's a good word, but that is not belief. It doesn't say he went home rejoicing. It doesn't say that he, he knew what Jesus had told him had finally come true. It says he went home thinking something must be going on. He was thinking about this. What could this mean? Something must 
be going on. And we don't have time to do it, but I would love to just look at the rest of Luke chapter 4 because the whole rest of the chapter is this same story. Luke chapter 24 is the resurrection chapter. It is the chapter that his whole story, his whole biography of Jesus' life is building to. And we get to Luke chapter 24 and we're told in the verses that we just read that Jesus is not here. He has risen. And you would expect it to be the party chapter where where it is just full of rejoicing and worship and praise of God. And the whole chapter is about fear and doubt and misunderstanding and disbelief. After the disciples say, we don't believe it, Jesus appears to two of them on the road to Emmaus. He walks with them for seven miles, and it is not until they sit down to have dinner together that they even recognize who he is. And then later that night, he appears to the 11 disciples, and even there, they can see him. They think it's a spirit, and it says they disbelieved for joy. They couldn't still believe it. There are 53 verses in Luke chapter 24, and it is not until verse 52 the second to last verse of the entire book that the the disciples come to a place where it says they worship Jesus and they went to Jerusalem with great joy. And that is only after they watched him ascend into the sky, returning to heaven. Why do we search for, why do we look for salvation in places we can't find it? Because it is hard to believe in the true Savior. It is hard to believe in the true Savior. It is a little bit like, actually I think it's a lot like, when trying to find street parking in the city. Uh, when we were in seminary, when we were in Massachusetts, we went to church in downtown Boston, and so we drove into the city. We didn't live in the city. We drove into the city every week for church. Now, when you're going to the city once, when you're going into San Francisco one time, you're going to make a day out of it, and it's like you got a limited amount of time, you're willing to pay the $118 it is to park in a garage just to not have to look for parking on the street. But when you go every single week, you're like, at least for me, I was like, I'm not paying for a garage every week. We're going to find parking on the street. And here's how it goes. I know, I know you all know how this goes. You're like, we're going to find a spot on the street. And so you start circling. And you start going street after street after street. And it is bumper to bumper to bumper parked cars. And it's like five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. At 20 minutes, I'm like, this was a huge mistake. We should have never come here. Let's just go home. This was a, this was a disaster. But then you come around a corner. And there is an open parking space. And the sun is shining on that spot. And it is wide enough for the minivan to fit in. And there's no other car there with its, with its flashers on or with its blinker on. And it's like for 25 minutes, this is the thing I have been looking for. And what do you do? You start to question whether you can actually park there. Well, why is nobody parked here? Why is this spot open? Do I need a sticker to park here? Is this a tow zone? Is it restricted parking? This is too easy. This is too good to be true. This can't be right. We better go find another spot. You have found the very thing that you have been looking for, but it seems so obvious and so easy and so too good to be true that you're like, I'm not sure this is the right one. We better keep going. So if you're here this morning and you struggle with some doubt about the stuff that we have just been reading, If you're not sure that you can totally buy this, if you're like, okay, um, totally unremarkable Jewish carpenter who lived 2,000 years ago, claimed to be God, did some crazy inexplainable miracles that we're not even sure if they're really true or people made up, 
was crucified on a cross, supposedly was raised from the dead three days later, visibly ascended into the sky to return to heaven. If you're like, I just have a hard time believing all of that, take heart because you are in good company. His very best friends, his most loyal followers, the people who most on the earth would have wanted to believe those things to be true, the people who saw them with their very own eyes, had a hard time coming to believe that what they were seeing was actually happening. And so as we round third and head into home on this message, can I just hang one question out there? I, I, I love to ask rhetorical questions that I'm going to do whether you say yes or no. Is it possible that it is not supposed to be easy? Is it possible that belief in Jesus is not supposed to be some easy slam dunk, totally provable, beyond a shadow of a doubt deal where there's no possibility that it could be untrue. The invitation of Jesus Christ to you and to me is not an invitation to absolute certainty. It is an invitation to faith. And faith by its very nature, faith by definition, is believing, choosing to believe in something that you are not 100% sure about. I love the way one of the scholars I read this week says it. His name is J.R. Edwards. He says, faith is not the inevitable result of evidence, even good evidence like empty tombs. Faith cannot be proven. It must be chosen. So here is the, the beautiful, scandalous news of Easter Sunday. There is more that exists than the physical, material world that you and I inhabit and can see, smell, touch, and taste. There is a God. There is a God who created you and me and everything in the world, and it was good. And for reasons that we cannot fully understand this side of eternity, this thing called sin infected God's good creation. Sin is a virus. It's like COVID. Sin has infected everything. It has infected you, it has infected me, and it has infected the creation we inhabit. And sin, falling short of God's standard, not living up to God's holiness, has broken our relationship with God. He intended to be in relationship with us. And this thing called sin has broken that relationship. And the beautiful message of Easter is that though we are more sinful than we could ever believe. God loves us more than we could ever imagine. He saw the mess that sin had created in his creation and he did not leave us in that mess, but he did something about it. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, God himself. Jesus was, came to earth as a man. He lived a perfect life. He lived a sinless life. He is the only one in all of history who was not stained by sin and yet he came to the end of his life and he died on a cross. He took upon himself the penalty that sin deserved, though he was the only one who did not deserve it. And in doing that, he took the penalty that you and I did deserve so that we would not have to face it. When he was nailed to the cross, he nailed the debt that our sin had racked up with God and he canceled it out. But he didn't stay dead. Three days later, early Sunday morning, in the power of God, Jesus Christ raised from the dead and in that moment, he proved his power over sin 
and death forever. And the promise for all who would come to him and say, I cannot save myself. I cannot, I cannot find salvation in anywhere else. I find salvation in you. Is The promise is that we do not have to fear sin and death either because just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we all one day who are covered by the blood of Jesus will also be raised with him to new life. If it seems too easy, if it seems too good to be true, if it feels like finding a parking spot in the middle of the city, it's not. It is true. Park the car. Uh, I think it'll be two weeks ago tomorrow, my wife and I received news uh, that one of our college friends was really sick and had just been intubated. And for the next uh, nine or eight or nine days, we got updates every day. And most of them were, were positive. They were good. Uh, seemed like things were progressing well and signs were good. And then on Wednesday, uh, right before we recorded our Good Friday service, uh, we got news that he had died. And um, he loved God. He loved Jesus a lot. Uh, the next morning on Thursday, my wife sent me a link uh, to one of his Instagram posts from several months ago. He led worship at his church and uh, was a very gifted singer. Uh, you all would have loved him. And it was a clip of him leading worship at, before COVID at his church. And it was just a short couple seconds. And the line that he was singing in that clip said, as long as I am breathing, I will always worship you. I just watched that over and over and over again. And while we have grieved this week, at his loss, I think it is so poignant that it has happened during the week of Easter because Beth sent me that link as I'm working on this message to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Luke 24 is true, if 2,000 years ago there was an empty tomb in Jerusalem, if Jesus was who he said he was and in the power of God he was raised from the dead, then our friend Jeremiah is breathing in this very moment and he is worshiping God in this very moment and will continue to for all of eternity. It was C.S. Lewis who said, if we find that nothing in this world satisfies, the most probable explanation is that we were made for a different world. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. We're going to move into a time of prayer. Uh, normally, this would be a response time where we, again, would invite people to come down, uh, but we're not going to do that. Uh, we're going to move in just to a time of, of response time in our seats and prayer. Um, if you don't know Jesus in that way, if you wouldn't say that Jesus is the Savior of your life, if you wouldn't say that he is the Lord of your life, uh, there is no better time than this moment to say, I want to make the decision to follow him. Uh, so as I close us in prayer, I'm going to lead us in a prayer of salvation that if you feel any nudge, if you feel like that is something I want to buy into, uh, just pray that prayer with me. If you feel so led, there's a verse in, in, uh, in Psalms that says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If you feel so led to stand up and pray it, that would be great. If you feel so led to put your hand in the air while we pray it, that would be great. If you don't feel led to do any of those things, that would be great too. I'm gonna be quiet for a minute and we're just gonna, we're just gonna sit quietly and, and contemplate what Easter is about, what Resurrection Sunday is about, and then I'll lead us in prayer.
Let's pray. God, we thank you and we praise you for this day. We thank you for everyone that you have allowed to gather here. We thank you for everyone that you've allowed to gather online. We pray that you would move in our midst. We are in awe of who you are. And we want to find in you our true salvation because we believe you are the only one who can deliver on the things that you promise. I pray, God, that your spirit would move amongst our body now, both here and online. I pray that for anyone who might be hearing you nudge on their heartstrings, that you would give them the courage and the power to respond. And if that's you, please join me in praying this prayer. It's simply gonna, it, we're simply going to tell God that we admit that we know we are sinners and that we can't clean ourselves up and ask him to do it for us. So, God, we ask. We ask that you would come into our lives. We admit that we are sinful people and that there is nothing that we can do to make ourselves clean enough to come into your presence. But that your promise is that for those who submit their lives to the lordship of Jesus, that you will clean us up. The message of your gospel is not clean yourself up and then maybe I'll accept you. The message of your gospel is I will accept you and then I will clean you up. So God, we admit that we are sinners, that we cannot save ourselves, and we ask that you would be Lord of our lives, that you would be not only our functional Savior, but our real Savior. And in doing so, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we might live lives running hard after you. We pray all of this in the precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Again, it has been wonderful to be with you. Thank you for being here on Resurrection Sunday. We look forward We look forward to continuing worship together as long as we're, we're able to. Uh, again, reminder, uh, in a very kind and humble way, please, uh, if, you, if you'd like to have a flower, come down and grab it and now receive the benediction. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Until we meet again or until our Savior comes and then forever. Amen. You are loved and you are prayed for and you are sent.